Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Well, you know, I'm asked sometimes why I don't do topical sermon series. And I said, you know what? I do. In fact, right now, I'm right in the middle of a 66-part series titled The Whole Council of God. And stay tuned for the end. It's a doozy. And it is quite topical, isn't it? I don't know about you, but we've covered every topic imaginable in the first seven chapters of Mark, haven't we? Many thanks to Brady and Diana, of course, for leading us to the throne room to worship our Savior and our King, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. We rise and we fall, yet he stays the same. And a word some may have learned last week was immutable, that God does not change. Not only do his attributes, meaning who he is, require that he be unchanging, but it is such an assurance for us as believers. You know, the only thing that is constant sometimes seems to be change. We often feel like we're standing on shifting sand. But in truth, saints, we are governed by whom we serve. And if you serve the one who is unchanging, you stand on a rock. And it may feel like quicksand, but that is when we fall into Peter's trap, isn't it? When we took our eye, when he took his eyes off of the Lord, walking out on the sea to him in the storm. And as long as his eyes were fixed on Christ, the author and the perfecter of his faith, it was as if he was walking on a rock. But the moment he looked away, he started to sink. Saints, scriptural truths are simple truths. They're hard, but they're simple. And this morning, we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And saints, that's where Jesus is this morning. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is making intercession for you. You know, I remember the first time I really processed, I, I really internalized the truth that Jesus is praying for me. If you are in Christ, Jesus is praying for you. And I don't know what more encouraging word we could take away today than that. What courage will it give us? What boldness? What strength? Whatever it is, however hard the situation or the predicament or the pain or the suffering, even just the strength to fight temptation or laziness, the author of your faith, the one who wrote it and who gifted it to you is praying for you. And where is he praying for you from? from the right hand of God the Father. Saints, you have the inside track. This week, Jesus is praying for you. And it may just be strength for today. That's fine. Tomorrow will worry about itself and you will have new wine for a new day. But friends, the game is rigged. Jesus himself is praying for you. The victory is secured. The strength is already guaranteed and the comfort of the spirit is ever present. Amen. 
Amen. Well, last week we completed yet another milestone as we finally completed chapter 7 in the Gospel of Mark. You know, some probably feel like they should get a t-shirt after every chapter, right? I survived chapter 7 at HHBC. May need to get our dear Nicole a year from now to design a I Survived the Gospel of Mark at HHBC t-shirt. I think they'd probably sell really well. Well, last week we were left witnessing a triple miracle in the heart of Gentile territory in Decapolis. A deaf man who was essentially mute as well because of his deafness not only had his ears opened and his tongue loosed, but was given perfect speech, complete speech as well. No speech therapy or language lessons required. And we witnessed the wonderful connection made between our text And Isaiah 35, when Messiah comes on the scene, when the kingdom of God breaks through, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. After having gone to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, after having poured out of himself to overflowing upon the Jews, we now see the runoff going to the Gentiles, even the crumbs from the table going to the Gentiles. And after today, every miracle that had been performed amongst the Jews have been represented to the Gentiles. They're all there in completion. An exorcism. Jesus healing the demoniac. That was here in Decapolis. The healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and the deaf and mute man. That physical healings entire in Decapolis. And now today, Jesus will perform a nature miracle. Exorcism, healing, and nature. All there, all three categories of miracles in complete representation to the Gentiles. And it's no wonder Jesus went and has gone to the Gentiles. As we witness the softness of hearts toward Jesus as he made his way through the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon and finally Decapolis. Had Jesus healed a deaf and a dumb man in Capernaum, they probably would have accused Jesus of having a demon himself. Yet here in our last scene of chapter 7, they sing Jesus' praise proclaiming that he has done all things well, that the heart soil of the area, having been tilled by the healed demoniac of the gathering, who was the first commissioned Gentile missionary, people were ready for Jesus when he came. This extended 120-mile route of Jesus through Gentile land was not only a time of discipleship between Jesus and the disciples, but was a foretaste of what the Old Testament had already prophesied. That Messiah would be the Savior of the Gentiles as well. All nations, all nations, in the most pagan of lands, they would receive Christ. And so we see the budding fruit of that in Jesus' mission throughout Gentile territory. The beginning of a flame. The beginning of a flame that would carry all the way to Lanesville 2021 as we sit here today as a collection of Gentiles ourselves. As we begin chapter 8 this morning, it holds a veritable treasure trove waiting for us to unfold. Yet we're not going to be leaving Gentile territory, but our scene is going to look very, very familiar 
from one we witnessed just a few messages ago. So with that, let's have a look at our text, Mark 8, verses 1 through 10. Mark 8, 1 through 10. And in those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the crowd, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, saying, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. And he kept giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the crowd. And they also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. Now about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text once again. Lord, this representation, this example that speaks to us as Gentiles, Lord, that you came, that you performed these miracles amongst these people and that they were there to receive it. Lord, as we watch the response of the disciples as well in this text, we ask that we would have soft hearts to receive what you would minister to us in that as well. Holy Spirit, we ask that you attend to your word and that the arrow would find its mark. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some who may be newer to their Bibles may not have known that there was, in fact, a second miraculous feeding of a thronging mass of people. I mean, many of you were here for our teaching at the end of chapter 6, which was a two-part series titled The Feeding of the 25,000, of course, traditionally known as The Feeding of the 5,000. But this was only counting the number of whole families now, present. That was the custom of the day. Well, today our scene has much in common with Mark 6 and the feeding of the 25,000. And yet in many ways is very different as well. So we have a lot to see. So let's jump into our text, beginning with verse 1. That's Mark 8, verse 1. In those days. Now let's pause there for a moment. When are we talking about? What days exactly? Well, this would be the days of Jesus' ministry in the area of Decapolis. But the specific days are less important than the fact that Mark wants us to know that this event is taking place in Gentile territory. It was in the days of Jesus' Gentile ministry. And in fact, is the crescendo of that ministry before we depart the area to go back towards Capernaum, finally up to Caesarea Philippi. That's the lens that the author wants us reading through. And that's important for us to know why. Saints, remember the first principles of reading our Bible. 
Part of our job is determining not what a text means to us or, or what we think it means. The question at the top of our minds is what did the author intend? That's really all that matters, right? I can think this and you can think that and, and Joe over here can think this and that. That doesn't really matter. What did Mark intend? And here Mark intends for us to know that he wants us to have our Gentile ministry goggles on. Okay, that's what we should be wearing. In our text, there was again a large crowd. Why again a large crowd? Why does Mark say again? Because he wants us to make the connection to the prior feeding of the 5,000. So here, reader, is another large gathering again. So now we know Mark wants us to connect this event to the feeding of the 5,000. Now, why do you care about that? Because it's now right and it's now correct for us to draw parallels between those accounts and to keep the other event in view if we want to understand this scene better. That's why it matters. And why? Because Mark wants us to have it in view, doesn't he? You might see a little theme here this morning with this as we try to emphasize an important principle. You know, how many have gone to a Bible study and someone, you know, well-meaning asks the group, what, what does this verse mean to you? Well, is that a relevant question? No. Is that how we're supposed to even read our Bibles? No, the question is never, what does this verse mean to me? The question is always, what does the author intend to say? What does Mark mean to say here? What does this mean to Mark or to his original audience? What would they have understood it to mean? You recall us teaching in previous messages that a text only has one meaning. And the author is the one who determines that meaning. And our job as good readers is to ferret out what that author has intended, what Mark meant. However, remember that there can be many applications to a text. Let's not confuse meaning with application, right? So just another helpful guideline for reading our Bibles. Back to our text. And they had nothing to eat. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? So far, our stories are quite similar to the Jewish miracle. Now, their hunger means a lot less to us right now until we get some additional information. Because I, I don't know about you, but I've been hungry lots of times, and so have you, so is that unique? Well, here it is. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, watch this in verse 2 and 3. I'll read them as one. I feel compassion for the crowd because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. The people were hungry. How much? Three days worth of hungry. Well, what does that tell us? This was intense. These people were enamored. They have seen what Jesus has done for the deaf and the mute man. And we know from other accounts that Jesus had been in this area doing all sorts of things. So the throng of the people was real. Just consider what would you need to be witnessing? What would you need to be hearing 
to go for three days with no food in order to keep on witnessing, in order to keep on hearing. Keep a Baptist from food for three days, it'd probably be the second coming. But that's the intensity of the people. That's the authenticity of the people, the desperation of the people. Matthew's account says that these Gentiles, that they too marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. These people have remained with Jesus for three days with nothing to eat. And I so love Jesus' response here. It's such a picture into our Savior's heart. And that's why we're here, aren't we? To know our Savior better, that we might love him more. So what's going on inside of Jesus when he sees this desperate crowd? No food, three days. And think, saints, there would have been women and children. Parents, what would you need to be witnessing? What event would it take for you to be willing to have no food for your own children for three days? Think about that. We know there were massive throngs of women and children. Feel the hunger of this crowd, literally and figuratively. Our Savior's response here in verse 3, I feel compassion for the crowd. You know, very interestingly, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus describes himself this way. There's many times where Jesus is described this way by, by the author or by other people, but this is the only place where Jesus says this of himself, that he is compassionate. And sadly, the English doesn't really capture this for us, saying compassion. You know, Lanesville 2021 thinks compassion. You have a certain feeling in mind, don't you, right now? Think about that internal sense you have when you, when you felt what you would define as compassion recently. You got that feeling? Well, that's not what Jesus is feeling here. Our word here is splenkrizomai. This is not a sympathy or even that feeling you get when you say you see a, a homeless person on the street that's hurting. Splenkrizomai means you are wrecked to your gut. You have a pit in your stomach. You feel, it in, you feel it in the very bowels of your being, like someone just knocked the wind out of you. Jesus felt deeply. He cared deeply. He loved people. So our English word for compassion is far too light for what Jesus is feeling here for these desperate and dedicated people. They were willing to stay three days and three nights to hear and see him. How do you think it was that third night for those with small children? How do you think it was that hard night on the ground? Oh, and it was a hard ground at this point. Remember our timing for the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that? The grass was lush and green at that time of year. Not now. We're now about four months later. It is crunchy, it is brown, and it is dry. Night three, laying on the ground with your children that have not eaten for three days. But Jesus, we must hear Jesus. The next time you are hemming and hawing about setting that alarm for church or to make it to early Sunday school, 
the intensity of this crowd would have walked to church and would have slept outside the door waiting for it to open. We serve the same Jesus today. He is alive and he's seated at the right hand of God. And we are able to gather under his word and with the saints. Let it be our highest desire for the weak. Yes, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he is rich in love. Back to our text. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. Some of these folks. You have a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. You came from a distant part of Decapolis. And the kiddos haven't eaten for three days. And now what? You you don't carry a seven and an eight-year-old. They have to walk home on day four. Or there are toddlers or babies. And mom and dad are carrying them all the way back. On day four, the cities of Decapolis were very spread out. It wasn't like Galilee about the elderly, no food, walking forever back home on day four. We want our feet in their sandals right now. They need to be if we're going to see what Mark wants us to see. And indeed, they had nothing to eat, it says. The Greek in verse three, where it says nothing is in the negative. Guess what that means? nothing, nothing. It's not like us when our, our fridge isn't full and the, the teenagers come home and say, you know, there's, there's nothing to eat around here, Dad. That No, nothing here means nothing. No snacks, no power bars, no Doritos, nothing, zero. Yet what happens next is a befuddling, it's an amazing and convicting part of our telling. By way of reminder, saints, what is part What is part of the main purpose Jesus is doing this whole Gentile tour? Besides the fact that he's supposed to go to the Gentiles, what was Jesus' other motive? Time with the disciples, right? Discipleship with the disciples. And man, oh man, I think we are going to see why in verse 4. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Well, if you've been walking with us in our series thus far, is this not a befuddling reaction from the disciples? And it certainly causes debate amongst theologians about how we treat this text. Did they not, just a few months earlier, in an almost identical setup, see Jesus feed 25,000 people from five loaves and two fish? Did they not witness miracle after miracle? Did they not have Jesus walk out on the water to them? The list goes on and on and on, and here they are. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Well, saints, we have two main takeaways from the disciples' response here, and both are really worthy of their own message. First, do we grasp the truly fallen state of man? Do we really grasp it? I can't speak for you, but myself, I am so thick in the head that I couldn't find my way out of a wet paper bag were it not for the sovereign grace of God. 
And Scripture is showing us right here that we are so fallen, our understanding so darkened, that we could sit under 30 miracles, look Jesus in the face, and we will still suffer from promise amnesia. We would still doubt. We would still fret. How quick are we in life sometimes to forget the goodness and the provision of God that has gone before us in our lives? God does something miraculous and amazing in our life. And what are we doing? We're we're marveling and we're giving praise reports to everyone in church. And four months later, we're, we're down in the dumps over a similar situation. It's promise amnesia. We forget the promises of God, how good he has been to us in our life and how he has performed and come through for us time and time again. And this really is the condition of the disciples at this point. All but one are genuine believers, aren't they? These are genuine believers at this point. We saw that change in them earlier. But oh, oh, how we forget. Of course, we all think we had been, of course, we all think, you know, had, had we been one of the disciples that we would have gotten it, don't we? We would have seen it. We would have had the faith of a roaring lion. No, we wouldn't. We would have been exactly as they were. And that's helpless without Jesus. And it is not that they didn't think Jesus could do it or that they had complete amnesia, forgetting about what happened a few months earlier, but their understanding was still so severely darkened. Dr. John MacArthur, he writes, quote, if the disciples had any doubts about what was about to happen, it was not Jesus' power they questioned, but his purpose, close quote. His purpose. I think we all know and can acknowledge that Jesus is powerful enough to do anything that he wants to. But how often do we actually question his purpose, his intention, his heart toward us? Meaning those were Jews, the disciples are saying, when they're thinking back. Those were Jews the first time you fed the masses. And that that fits into my neat little box. Jewish people, Jewish Messiah. But these are Gentiles. And we don't think Jesus is going to do this again. Not for Gentiles. So what are we going to do? How are we going to feed them? Did they understand Jesus' mission to the Gentiles? Did they grasp the scope of what he came to do? Who he came to save? Well, clearly no. And after such illumination, we are still that darkened. But didn't Jesus just heal Gentiles in front of the disciples? Yes. Didn't he just cast out demons from Gentiles in front of the disciples? Yes. So what gives here? Why the thought that Jesus is not going to do something here? You can heal them, Lord. Great. You can cast out demons out of them, Lord. Fantastic. But now you want me to eat with them? Hold the phone. Right? That is a bridge too far. I get it. You're Savior to the Gentiles and all. But this, if your understanding is darkened, the question of how are we going to feed all these people out here is actually quite reasonable. It's not like Jesus is going to ask us to actually dine with Gentiles now, right? That wouldn't have even entered into their Jewish mind. They really didn't get it. Did they? Let us not forget that term that we've learned before. 
called the noetic effects of the fall. The noetic effects of the fall. Meaning it was not just our bodies that fell, but our minds as well. Our ability to think and to reason properly. A mind that would desire the true God as he is. That's how we thought when we were created. That was taken away in Genesis 3. That was removed. And that should drive us to such humility. The disciples' response here should drive us to such humility. What a reminder for us. Nothing of myself I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The narrow gate that leads to life has no room for a backpack where we bring our own accomplishments along. We are clothed in the merits of Christ alone. You don't bring your accomplishments to the cross. You don't bring your intellect to the cross or your strength. We all come naked as a jaybird. Jonathan Edwards famously said, quote, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And Martin Luther affirmed this when he said, quote, if any man ascribes anything of salvation, even the very least thing to the free will of man, he knows nothing of grace and he has not learned Jesus Christ rightly, close quote. How about Spurgeon? Of course, he jumps on the bandwagon, quote, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ, including ourself. We must see this for the disciples' reaction to make sense, for our own conversion and salvation to make sense as we throw ourselves down in awe and gratitude to such a merciful God. That's takeaway number one to the disciples' response. that We are a fallen people completely dependent on God for our whole life, from justification to sanctification to glorification. And we need to be reading our word and surrounded by the people of God to remind us of truth when we begin to suffer promise amnesia. And we all do at different times. Second takeaway, let it not be lost on us saints that we have a holy book that does not gloss over the incredible flaws of its characters. We get it warts and all. And that is lovely. That's lovely. How do you think Muhammad is depicted in the Quran? As fallen? As struggling? As, as thick-headed? As someone who's not getting something for the hundredth time? Or is he some flawless warrior who is practically God himself? How's Buddha depicted? Go down the line. False religions deify the founders and the people of their religion without exception. Not the Bible. Not the Bible. Think about Peter, who was going to be the rock upon which the entire church was built. Not in the way the Catholic Church means, but is Peter deified in Scripture? Or do we see Peter denying Christ? Do we see Peter's faith waning as he sunk into the sea? Do we get to see all the failings of those who went before us? The truthfulness to show the incredible flaws of its characters, right? Think of King David. is another great testimony to the truth of Scripture. No other writings held as sacred do such a thing. None. Not only do we see the truth of our characters, but we get to see a response, 
A response like Jesus's here in verse five. Verse five. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Well, I can tell you right now, to my shame, that that would not have been my response to the disciples. Look at his patience. Look at his forbearance. And don't think the disciples always got off that easy. There were times of rebuke where Jesus chastised their lack of faith, but amazingly, not here. And remember that we are to teach this story with the other feeding of the 5,000 in mind, right? Mark wants us to do this. Thus, we need to see the lesson of the, disciples of the disciples' response. But dare I say that even more important is the lesson of the Savior's reply. He doesn't rebuke them. He's gentle with them. How many loaves do you have? Seven. Well, there's another difference. Last time we had five loaves. This time we have seven. And I point out these differences because there, there are some strains of more liberal theological thought that believe this was a retelling of, of, of one same event. And I do not believe that to be correct for several reasons that are very clear and a few of which we'll point out. But what does Jesus do next here in verse 6? Verse 6. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. And he kept giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the crowd. Well, a few things for us to observe here. First, the crowd obeyed Jesus. Obedience preceded the miracle. And I won't pull that application too far beyond what the text intends, but there is a principle there. And they sat on the ground. And note, unlike the last time where they sat on the grass, right? Nice green grass, not this time, totally different scene. This is ground, ground, dusty and brown. And taking seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. So there's no doubt where the multiplication is coming from. This is an act of God. Jesus, give thanks. Jesus gives thanks to the Father for all to see. And he broke them. Now, this act of breaking bread, it kind of seems to be a connected theme, isn't it? Recall, if you will, after Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24, I'll read for you. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. It's like our scenes today that, that, that fuel this later recognition of the risen Lord when he's with them. So back to our text. Disciples to serve them. Well, we've got some buried treasure in this right here. This act of giving here, is, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it was continual. As the English says, he kept giving and they served them to the crowd, meaning that, that this multiplication, this giving was happening right before their very eyes to each one of them. This breaking was a one-time act, but the giving was continuous. You as a disciple are going to take bread that is multiplied in the master's hands. You're watching this take place as Jesus 
I'll use the word ministers this food to each of his disciples. That is an intimate exchange, is it not? Hear Matthew, hear John, hear Peter, placing it in their hands. The multiplication is happening right before their eyes. We cannot lose the impact on the disciples of being the ones that served the crowd as well. Not only are you going to eat with the Gentiles, you are going to place thousands of pieces of bread into those unwashed hands yourself. Now, could Jesus have caused the bread to show up in every person's pouch? He could have, couldn't he? Of course. But he chose to use people to disseminate the bread. That still captivates me today. Every time I approach the pulpit, I'm in awe of what he uses. That Jesus places the treasure of the gospel in an earthen vessel. Instead of just making it happen, he uses people. Scripture tells us God uses the preached word. God uses you and you and you for the propagation of the gospel. And that is incredible. Why? Because newsflash, God doesn't need us. But it gives great joy to the Father to condescend to be in relationship with us. And that is wonderful. In my mind's eye, being a disciple in that moment would have been life-altering. And it is meant to be life-altering for us when we reflect that God joins with fallen yet redeemed man to accomplish His will. The bread could have just appeared in the food bags of the crowd. No, go beyond that. Could Jesus have just made their hunger disappear? No food necessary. Hunger just be gone. Could He have? Of course but he doesn't. He doesn't then, and he doesn't now. So saints, we must consider the entire concept of food for a moment. Did you know that the entire process of eating and food was designed by God to draw you to himself and to bring him glory multiple times a day? Did you know that? God could have designed us to not even need food. Instead, He gives us something that three to four times a day, we sense an inner need, don't we? A pain or a rumble. We have a need and God fills it. And how does he fill it? Could he have made food to be something that was a a tasteless brick? Well, sure, he could have done it however he wanted to. Yet he gives us all the spread of a Baptist buffet. Right? Think about all the wonderful different foods. That is meant to point you to the goodness of God. Your hunger pang is not just a a natural body function. It's given by God to remind you that you need Him and that He is your satisfaction, that He has provided for our satisfaction. And then you go and you take a bite and your heart is meant to sing, I need you, Lord, and you have provided. Isn't that amazing? So the next time your tummy rumbles, remember why. I'm a needy person. I need God and He is my provider. That's what Jesus has done in our text. I could have made the bread simply appear in their baskets, but no. I could have just willed away their hunger. I'm not going to do that either. 
You disciples are going to watch this. You're going to watch this multiply in my hands. You're going to take it and you're going to serve the unwashed masses literally. And then you and all 16,000 of these people are going to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is in intimate relation with his creation. Search the world over and you will never find a God like that. Back to our text, interestingly here in verse 7, almost like an afterthought, we read this in verse 7. And they also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Well, small small side note here, Mark uses a a different word for fish here than he does in the feeding of the 5,000. The kind depicted here was more of a small fish, like, like a sardine. And the fish previously used, they were, they were bigger pieces of more uh, pickled kind of fish. Here are just dry, small sardines. And we point out this as a distinction from the previous miracle. Yet what's not a distinction, what's not a difference from the previous miracle, is that this crowd would be satisfied. Verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied. Stop there. If ever there was a sermon unto itself, there it is. And they ate and were satisfied. This is the same word for satisfied that we've seen before, that they ate their fill as much as they wanted. It just kept coming. It just kept being delivered. What do you think that conversation was about? I wonder with all these people now sat down in groups of 50 and 100 I imagine this group of Gentiles who were born and raised in idol and pagan worship, who were raised knowing nothing of a coming Jewish Messiah, now sounded more like the church should than the church often does. People simply gathered in awe of Jesus. And look what Jesus did. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he lovely? Seven large baskets full of leftovers this time. Not small baskets like the 12 before. Those were kind of more lunch pail size. These are big baskets. And there's some speculation as to why seven And in many books of Scripture. It's right to, in some books of Scripture, it is right to analyze or to symbolize numbers. But I don't think Mark tends to do that. So we're going to stay away from trying to make a connection to the number seven there. At best, the seven here could indicate the totality of the Gentile nations, right? Seven is the number of perfection, etc. But it's not likely that Mark intended this. Mark's style is more, you know, when he writes seven baskets, he writes that because there were just seven baskets. Sometimes it's just simple. It's not super spiritual with Mark. Mark records our number gathered for us as well in verse 9. So helpful, verse 9. Now about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. 4,000, again, was a household number. So best guess is 16,000 people. 16,000 Gentiles. 25,000 Jews in our earlier miracle is quite the crowd. It was amazing. In fact, it's one of the most amazing scenes in Scripture. But these were Jews who were looking for Messiah, a military Messiah to deliver them from Rome but a Messiah nonetheless. To see that kind of gathering is is huge, but it's expected. But here, though, in Gentile land, coming from the areas of Decapolis, 
I pray you never read the story of the demoniac of the Gadarene the same ever again. We all have our people that, that we can't wait to meet when we get to heaven, and I have all my usual suspects, but I can't wait to meet this man who was set free from demoniac possession, from legion, was commissioned by Jesus himself to go to his people, tell them what the Lord has done for you. And guess what? He did. He did. And baked into this 4,000 household number is the evangelistic zeal of that man. A most unlikely man. So Gentile, who's in your spiritual lineage? Demoniac of the Gadarene. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Isn't that amazing who God uses? Now, if we look at the end of our verse, verse 9, it says that he sent them away. Interesting, but not if we tie it right into verse 10. And he sent them away, and immediately he entered the boat. Now, what's going on here? Well, really, same thing that happened with the Jews. This guy can heal us. He can feed us. All hail King Jesus, right? By force if we have to, but all hail the king. Now, Mark doesn't go out of his way to, to mention this, so the intensity of the crowd was, far less, was likely far less intense than the Jewish scene. Because remember, that was in Jewish zealot territory before, right? But nevertheless, Jesus sent them away. He sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples, meaning it was time to go and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, this is an area just between Magdala and Capernaum, meaning Jesus had come full circle. He's back home, but if for a very short time. You know, saints, Jesus has invested heavily in his disciples. Discipleship matters. It's God's plan to grow you. We saw an unlikely faith in an unlikely place with the Syrophoenician woman, didn't we? The faith of friends to bring their deaf and mute brother to Jesus as well. Numerous healings and activities in Gentile land. And finally, the feeding of 4,000 households. Before returning home, Jesus has well and truly gone to the Gentiles. And my hope is that after hearing these last three to four messages of Jesus' mission to the Gentiles, you feel a bit like you're coming home as well. And the cross is now less than a year away for Jesus. And consequently, the cross is about a year away for us in our series as well. Those who eat the bread of life will never be hungry again. Just as Jesus told the woman at the well, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water and you would never thirst again. No one ever leaves the Lord's table hungry. And indeed, as we begin to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, those who hunger will be, will be filled. Those who thirst will be satisfied. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. As we begin to pre prepare our hearts to receive, let us pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing text. For your mission to the Gentiles. Lord, we are a fruit of that mission. 
Lord, that you found faith in a most unlikely place and that all of us were a most unlikely people when you found us, when you called us and when you rescued us. Lord, we ask that the feeding of these Gentile 4,000 would sink deep into our hearts. Lord, that we would draw upon its truths in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.